Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, I'm a little late because I was uh, shoveling snow, which is a um, more of a chore than you would expect uh, here in Texas because um, you can't buy a snow shovel anywhere. So you've got to use um, kind of a more regular shovel. So we've had our second uh, actual snowfall in two years now, uh, almost on the same day, I guess, that big one we had last time around. And uh, it did the usual thing it does here in North Texas, where it rained for about six hours and then froze. So there's an inch of ice on top of everything. There's an inch of snow on top of the ice. So this being a place where people are not used to that kind of thing, even though it happens more often and more regularly than you would expect, it is, of course, total chaos outside. And uh, I will not be, I think, uh, leaving the house except under compulsion uh, today. But my sidewalks are clear. Yeah, I, I think that's still a bit of a difference between Florida and Texas, as you guys still do get that stuff. It really would be yeah, the apocalypse. I mean, this far north we do. I'm yeah. sorry, what? It would be the apocalypse if, perhaps not where I am, but Miami. <laughs> I wonder yeah, when it did last have, snow in Miami. Yeah, didn't we have some snow blown around in Miami like a year or two ago or something? And it, it was just nuts. I don't know. I know the last time. I want, to, but... I want to say they had snow visible in Miami within the last couple of years. I have really? some vague I, memory of it. I, I can't see how that could be the case because the last time it snowed in Jacksonville, I believe, was 1989. Hmm. I don't think they had snowfall, like, you know, snow on mm. the ground, but there was like snow flurries blowing around or something. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. Or maybe I'm thinking of something else. I could be completely hallucinating. This has been known to happen. Well, we can look it up. I'm sure we'll get emails. We pro- we're getting them already, even yeah. though this podcast has not been published. People are preemptively sending this email. I can I can feel it. So, you think that we should have big tent parties, and that well, this? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Sort and, of. Go ahead. Well, you think that this this focus on which party will this currently bigger tent than it's supposed to be party. Uh, y- y- yeah. I've got lost my, my train of thought now. I was. I'm sorry to interrupt. I messed. I'm no. <laughs> okay. I derailed your train of thought. You you. Uh, I'm a train of thought saboteur. <laughs> Actually, think... people sometimes write to say that I interrupt you too much, and they complain about it. Really? Well, you think that, yeah. or is the wrong question uh, to ask uh, or framework to use? Right. Yeah. So there's a um, there's a Jane Coaston podcast over at the uh, New York Times, and she kind of did a Republican one and a Democratic one. Uh, the Republican one was Charlie Sykes, who's not a Republican anymore, I suppose, and Rich Lowry, who I think you may have heard of. And um, then the Democratic one was um, I don't know if it was just published this week, but I saw it this week. Anyway, there was a headline over the right of it. And it said, you know, are the Democrats going to be the party of Joe Manson, Manchin or AOC? And uh, for those of you who know, that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but apparently well-known enough now to have uh, just her initials in the New York Times headline, um, which I suppose is nice for the headline writers because Ocasio-Cortez is a lot to get into a headline. Um, I think my favorite president did a, uh, a lot of headline writers a favor by going by Ike instead of Eisenhower, 
Just a lot to squeeze into a one-column headline. Uh, anyway, that all being said, I thought it was interesting to you know phrase it that way. It's either got to be this or that, um, because the parties already are, I think, in many ways much more uh, homogenous than they were um, a generation ago, and there seems to be a perceived need to make them even more homogenous, that somehow the Democratic Party can't go on if it's got both Joe Manchin and AOC and people like that in the party. And I thought this was kind of um, an interesting starting off point. So I took a look at the 93rd Congress, which um, is January of 1973 through January of 1975. And it was an interesting Congress for a lot of reasons, uh, partly because the Nixon almost impeachment uh, happened during that. And um, so the president left office. They had a new president come in and there's a Democratic majority in the uh, in the Congress during that time. And the Democrats kind of got a lot done in the uh, 93rd Congress, um, more than you would expect during a period in which a lot of the political conversation was really wrapped up in the impeachment and Watergate. Um, so they passed some important environmental laws, uh, created a legal services corporation. They did some health care reform. Uh, they did some big moves on um, mass transit, making highway funds available to spend on mass transit, which had been a real priority for uh, some big city Democrats. They got a lot of stuff done that if you were a progressive, you would have felt pretty good about the uh, 93rd Congress. Uh, especially compared to, say, the current one, where the Democrats also have control of both houses, although just barely in the Senate, and they aren't really getting very much done. And um, But if you look at the people who made up the 93rd Congress on the Democratic side, you've got some way, way different people. It was a much, much less uh, homogenous party than it is now. You, know, you had crazy coop segregationists like Eastland. And then you had, you know, sort of radical left-wingers like Bella Abzug, people like that. So it was a, um, you know, a much more diverse party that was, for whatever reason, able to get a lot more things done. And there was more diversity on the Republican side, too, I think. You know, you still had people like Weicker and Rockefeller in the party uh, back then. And I guess Rockefeller briefly involved in the Senate when he was vice president for a short period of time. And uh, so both of the parties are more homogenous. I think it's maybe more interesting to look at just from the um, from the Democratic point of view um, in this particular case, because they were so um, wildly different uh, at that point compared to where they are now. You know, I think the distance between someone like um, Nelson Rockefeller and Barry Goldwater, while significant politically, is nowhere near the difference between Charlie Rangel and uh, Jim Eastland or some of these other old-fashioned, you know, Jim Crow Democrats that were still in office and still active and senior figures up until the, you know, 90s. And I guess in the case of Byrd until, what, 2003, when Byrd finally left office, sometime, sometime around that time. Um, the Exalted Cyclops, uh, which is the title that I never get tired of writing because it always makes me laugh. So I think maybe there's some lessons for both parties in this. And I'm not necessarily... Um, I'm not a big tentist in the sense that I think diversity in the party is is good for its own sake. 
Um, there are lots of things you don't want to have in your party, lots of tendencies you don't want to have in your party. But there was a much less strong sense of this or that, I think, in the 70s, 80s, even in the 90s and later uh, than there is now. Part of this, I think, is what I call the politics of cooties, you know, which is I disagree with Marco Rubio on one issue and therefore I cannot be in the same party as this guy and he's the devil. Um, I disagree with Mitt Romney on one issue and therefore he's the devil, um, which is a much more common attitude, I think, now than it was then, uh, which is ironic in a sense because I think the differences uh, between people within the parties right now are in some ways morally less serious. Um, I understand that um, AOC and Joe Manchin have very different views about what the government should be doing, doing what the good life looks like, uh, what the direction of the country should be, and what the direction of the Democratic Party should be. But these differences are not as great as the differences between um, people who were practitioners and supporters of racial apartheid and people who were you know, conventional uh, big city progressives which once upon a time you had both of those in the Democratic Party. And um, so what do you think? I think there's some there's something of interest there. Well, I think as a purely practical matter, you're self-evidently correct. And that the failure to understand this is one reason the Democratic Party is both in trouble and also sounding absurd in that it only has a majority because it remains to some extent, although much less than in the time you were describing, a big tent. I mean, the yeah. fact that and Joe Manchin that would be obvious to them. Well, right. The, the, Joe Manchin is often cast as some sort of impediment or recidivist, but he is the reason that the Democrats are discussing federal legislation at all. So is Kirsten Cinema. It, it, it's not as if there is some obscure constitutional provision that has been discovered that says if you happen to have within your coalition a senator from West Virginia, that person can veto everything at will, at whim. No, Joe Manchin is why the Democrats have their uh, their majority. And as such, whether they like it or not, they have a big tent. I thought another part of this that was interesting was your list of legislation that was passed in that this isn't true of everything there. But a great deal of what congressional Democrats accomplished in that period was obviously of federal concern. Mm -hmm. uh, you list the Legal Services Corporation, the Case Church Amendment, which cut off U.S. military support for operations in Cambodia and Laos, Highways Trust Fund money, federal Congress disaster relief procedures. Amazingly enough. Um, federal Rules of Evidence Codification, Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. Now, there are some things in that that are not federal, or at least should never have been federalized in the first place. For example, I don't mm. think... Senator Kennedy should have been in a situation in which he could be creating HMOs. And I'm more skeptical about the federal role in protecting endangered species and other environmental legislation. But the, the point I'm making is that um, 
one of the reasons that Democrats have run into a wall, other than that they have 50 seats in the Senate and a divided party, is that they are trying to preempt a great deal of uh, state legislation, which has inevitably caused the... Uh, political divisions in our country to rear their heads. Uh, you, you you cannot, with 50 senators, expect to say to Florida or Texas or Wyoming, we are going to take over your election rules and expect no pushback. You, you cannot say we are going to provide pre-K on our terms. We are going to override your um, paid leave or minimum wage rules. And I I think that this is another difference. It's not that the Congress of the 1970s was obsessed with a sort of Clarence Thomas-esque narrow reading of the Commerce Clause. Far from it. In fact, Republicans were much worse on this question back then. But if you look at what it was that they got done, they were far more likely to be able to gain bipartisan support and keep their own... uh, divisions under wraps because they weren't running into the sources of those divisions i mean you know it's just not obvious they weren't trying to fight the constitution while they were fighting the republicans well that that's true but what i also mean is that there were some profound divisions in the democratic party at the time that you mentioned now some of them were extremely Mm -hmm. ugly and what i'm about to say is not to suggest that there is no rule for role for federal uh power in overcoming that but if you tell as a democratic party senator eastland we are going to change how the deep south uh conducts its affairs you are going to provoke him into opposition which is what happened now in that particular Mm -hmm. case i happen to think that the federal government was right but Mm -hmm. there's no reason on the face of it that, that there should be any great difference of opinion between a Lowell Weicker and a Senator Eastland on the question of, say, federal disaster relief or yeah. uh, or the Endangered Species Act, for that matter. And so what well, they seem course, to have done there is... was, and a lot of this stuff had, some, had quite a bit of Republican support, too. One thing I'd like to emphasize here, though, before you go on, if you don't mind my interrupting you again, if the readers will or listeners no, will forgive me. No, I was on to... No, that's all right. Um, is that with the obvious and very large exception of this this one very big issue that you mentioned, which is the situation of, of African-Americans and um, you know, civil rights and desegregation and the rest of that stuff. The differences between these two wings of the Democratic Party were not as radical as you would expect. So if you go back and you look at how these Southern segregationists uh, voted and what they supported, um, whether it's you know, during the Wilson administration or doing, during the New Deal or even to uh, to a lesser extent during Johnson's Great Society stuff, they were progressives in the sense that we um, understand that word. They were not progressives on the issue of civil rights, but they were progressives on almost any other front. So they were in favor of you know things like um, expansive federal intervention in the labor market. They were in favor of business regulation of various kinds. They were in favor of... Um, you know, all kinds of uh, welfare programs and redistribution schemes. 
and they were you know, typically in favor of, um, you know, things like, uh, oh, you know, the rural electrification projects and these sort of, you know, big government initiatives to, um, to have the government be a leading party in economic development, those sorts of things. They liked this stuff. They were not people who were, right. uh, they get called conservative Democrats right. a lot, but they were not conservative in the sense of being um, skeptical of big government, conservative in the sense of being, you know, sort of libertarian or classical liberal. They were actually, you know, practitioners of what's become a much more common and I think uh, accepted approach to politics, which is that they were essentially socially reactionary and uh, politically and economically uh, progressive. Um, you know, they used to be kind of a joke. Um, you know, people would always say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative. And in fact, it would almost, you know, always be kind of the opposite was, was actually a more popular view. Still is. I remember in, in 30 Rock, there's um, a character played by the actor's name. I can never remember who's Mayhem in the uh, insurance commercials who plays Liz Lemon's boyfriend. I forget his name. Oh, anyway, yeah. when he describes himself as being, uh, you know, socially conservative and fiscally liberal, and that's played as being a big joke. Um, but it's not actually, you know, kind of much of a joke. That's in fact... Um, a pretty common, I think, um, view um, of American life. And it's not just among people who are um, sort of toxic racists the way people like Eastland were, but also among people who just have a more kind of socially conservative um, sensibility in general. That was, in a sense, the great bargain that FDR struck, was he wouldn't yeah. touch civil rights and southern segregationists who liked the new deal would vote for it there was a really good piece in of all places jacobin about this a few years ago pushing back mm -hmm. against the idea the parties had switched yeah and i know point, the piece you're talking about yeah yeah and pointing out that really republicans views on on business although they're less pronounced they're not really that different than they were in the 20s and and during the new deal and that uh, there's there were two strains in the Republican Party and two strains in the Democratic Party. In the Democratic Party, you did have northeastern liberal Democrats who were by no means segregationists and wanted to uh, destroy segregation. I mean, one of them was Hubert Humphrey, who got that put into the plank in 1948. Um, Harry yeah. Truman was not wild about that because he thought it would cost him the election, which it it didn't. Um, so some uh, people were not wild about Harry. And Harry was not <laughs> wild about that. And and the other strain, obviously, was was the Southern segregationist um, welfare state uh, yeah. party. And then in the Republican Party, you had a lot of figures who were really genuinely concerned about civil rights. And then you had another strand of Republican who was not uh, in any sense pro-segregation, but also was libertarian enough not to want to use the government to do anything about it. And of course, that, yeah. that did hurt Republicans. I and mean, that was Barry Goldwater's position. And it hurt him enormously. And we can debate whether or not he was right or wrong. But um, what you're looking at, and it's fascinating to read your piece, because what you're looking at in the 70s is in a sense, the the continuation of of that coalition as a functional political block. Now it had changed yeah. because obviously a lot of that civil rights work had been done, and so much as they didn't like it, that the senators within the Southern Coalition had sort of lost. Um, but yeah. but also once that had been done, it didn't need to be done anymore. And so for quite a long time, you could 
pass a lot of legislation just by saying, well, what do you think about roads? You know? And of course, that yeah. breaks down in the 90s. Um, you know, it's interesting about the um, you know, kind of socially reactionary uh, welfare state politics, I think, is that the classical liberal tradition is so strong in the United States that I think sometimes we have trouble understanding that um, that particular political orientation, even though it's not uncommon here. Whereas in, in the European context, you would look at that and say, that's, that's Le Penism, you know. It's it's a very you know kind of familiar uh, form of um, both economic and social protectionism uh, for people, and um, I don't think we we quite see it the same way because we've got this very um, pronounced libertarian tendency on, on the right. Yeah. So at least we used to. <laughs> so obviously the. The case you're making is is not one um, that is presently popular, and I don't think it is just AOC that provides evidence for that. And Chuck Schumer won't say whether or not he thinks cinema and mansion should be primary. The guy's the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. Could you imagine? <laughs> not for long. No, but could you imagine Mitch McConnell answering that question in that way? And whatever you think of Mitch McConnell, he understands his job, and his job is to yeah. have as many Republicans as possible in the Senate to keep the majority, and to make sure that insofar as is possible, the party is not divided. But if the party is divided, that the various members are able to do what they need to do in order to get reelected. And that's why he is happy to have Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, and on some questions, Mitt Romney, uh, in the same party as Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, and uh, if you asked him the question, <laughs> Senator McConnell, uh, do you think it would be a good idea if Susan Collins were primary? His answer would be no. It wouldn't be, yeah. I don't want to comment on this. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that really speaks to the big cultural change in our, in our politics. So if you're in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and you're, uh, you're a Democratic strategist or leader, um, you're saying to yourself, well, I would like to have, I mean, never mind Joe Manchin, you know, personally, but I would like to have the sort of people who want to vote for Joe, Joe Manchin supporting my party. You know, I would like to have these, um, you know, socially conservative, politically moderate, um, uh, rural and semi-rural and suburban people support my party. How do I go out there and do that? And uh, I think in today's Democratic Party, and there's a, there's a version of this on the right, but it's easier to see in the Democratic Party, I think, is we don't want those people in our party because those people are bad people. Um, so what we need to do is think of ways to purge them. Now we want to get, you know, some enough political support to, um, to maintain our, our power, but we actually don't want to do anything to attract these sorts of voters into our party because we think that they are morally corrupt, morally deficient, um, people that we don't want to be associated with. So I think a lot of our politics now, you know, we define it by ever narrower, circles of association, uh, whereas the traditional democratic Marty, democratic model of politics, small d democratic, I mean, is how do we expand our so circle of association? Um, how do we get more people, people who aren't necessarily like us, to be part of our coalition because we agree on certain things? Now, the version of this on the right, I think you run into, is, is really 
highlighted by uh, Trumpism, although it's not the beginning or end of it. And there's this sense among, you know, the sort of um, hardcore, true believing Steve Bannon types that the Republican Party has to, uh, first of all, crush what they they call the Paul Ryan Republicans. Um, I think if Paul Ryan had had as much influence when he was in office as people imagine he did, he would have been a dictator of the universe. But, um, you know, there's this sense that we have to smash, take over, push these people out, marginalize them. And uh, then we can, you know, enjoy our minority of 14 percent or whatever they'll actually be. And there's a there's a similar tendency, I think, and, you know, among what we, uh, you know, would call for for lack of a better term, the the anti-Trump Republicans and both of them, um, you know, people who. Um, well, Charlie Sykes got into this in the podcast with Rich who um, just clearly couldn't be part of a coalition that also includes these, um, you know, people who end up being the, the really enthusiastic Trump voters. Um, now, setting aside the question of, you know, Trump himself, there's obvious reasons you wouldn't want him to be you know, carrying your banner if you were any sort of, uh, you know, self-respecting person or a person who had uh, much of a sense of political self-reservation. But presumably you want those voters in your party. Um, even if you think that, yeah, some of them have some views you don't like, some of them have some cultural tendencies that maybe you find offensive or ugly or, or wrong. Um, but people who agree with you on a lot of issues and maybe are open to persuasion on some others are people you would naturally um, want to try to include in your coalition. And I think there's this sense now where they say, well, if you know I support X and Harry supports X and Harry and I cooperate toward X, that means I have to endorse, you know, everything about Harry. And uh, that's simply, you know, not the case. And you see this in all sorts of settings, not just in terms of uh, coalitions for political parties, but institutionally. You know, you see, um, well, you you and I see this all the time where um, National Review publishes 55 different opinions on a subject. And every one of those is, here's what National Review thinks about this or that. Um, you know, I get it when I write for, uh, you know, non-conservative publications. Well, how could you support, support, you know, a publication that believes X, Y, or Z um, as though, you know, publishing on the same page um, where a Paul Krugman column sometimes appears means that you're suddenly, you know, uh, on Team Krugman. It's just, uh, it's just silliness. But we really do have this in this increasingly kind of a moralistic, puritanical uh, politics of cooties that really um, it affects the political parties. It affects uh, the major political movements in the country. It affects institutions, whether it's media or business, increasingly, and um, certainly universities and uh, and things along those lines. Churches, uh, certainly a big part of it. It's um, it's a very strange and I think uh, socially backward situation. One of the Silliest things I've heard a Republican say in recent years was when Jim DeMint said that he'd rather have 40 solid senators than 60 unreliable senators. <laughs> yeah. That I wouldn't. Was, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. I'd rather have um, 60 people who broadly agreed with me or at least agreed with me enough to block the other side than... 40 senators who are all purists well it'd be great to have the 40 you know hardcore purists if you also had 25 
halfway reliable. Oh, sure, uh, sure. But, on top of it. But, um, yeah, no, I, I... But it's also just a, a ridiculous I, expectation that you're going yeah. to you're going to be able to fill a federal legislature with people who are sufficiently ideological when you're yeah. not. You, I think it's easy to make too much... The country doesn't look of, like that. It's easy to make too much of polling, but if you look at, you know, just the sort of basic opinion polls... There doesn't seem to be much of a situation in which you're going to get 65 people who look like Ted Cruz um, in the Senate. Um, in some in some ways, it's surprising that you got one Ted Cruz uh, in the Senate. And um, yeah, there are these crazy, you know, expectations that, um, well, if we just went out there and if we really fought, then all these people who actually disagree with us on a whole lot of important stuff would suddenly come around and support us. Um, if we just knew how to present our case, or if it weren't for media bias, um, a lot of people, and this is something that's true on both sides, um, just can't deal with the fact that they're exquisitely nuanced, well thought out, um, in some way, internally, internally coherent ideological positions are not um, the position of almost any voter. Yeah, and there's a bit of slippage, too, between concepts. So you have, and National Review was instrumental in this, this desire in the 1950s to provide a choice, not an echo. In other words, to prevent both parties from essentially believing the same thing, both yeah. parties being, in a sense, irrelevant and, and just amalgams of, of people with different political views that all congealed in the middle. Um, that often slips into what we need is a, a clear choice by which the speaker means for one of those two parties to be about as extreme as it can be. And obviously, I would like that <laughs> if the party were extreme in the sense that it agreed with me on everything. But right. yes. there's very little evidence that that actually works and and you know even the most recent example which is often marshaled in defense of this idea well what about trump well actually uh, if you look at polling a, a lot of americans thought trump was moderate now he's not moderate in his speech or behavior or any of that but trump ran against entitlement reform you know trump seemed to middle of the road voters to be a rejection of the paul ryan side of the party i don't think that's a good thing partly because I think that the entitlement issue is an issue of math, not um, public preference. But it's also true. And, you know, this idea that if you just run, if you just run the most hardline person, that the public is going to say, oh, well, finally, I understand in the clearest way possible what it is that that party stands for and I'm on board, is wrong. And it's even wrong when you examine the examples that are given of when it supposedly worked. I mean, for example, Margaret Thatcher in England. Margaret Thatcher was a hardliner. She was different. She took the Conservative Party in a far more classically liberal direction than it had been for a long, long time. But she didn't win in 1979 because the British public said, that's what we need. She arguably won in 1987 because she had convinced enough uh, voting members of the public that she was right. 
But she won in 1979 because the other side was so crazy and it inflicted so much damage on the country that people threw up their hands and said, well, how much worse could it get? And you could make a similar case with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Yes, there were people who thought he was right relative to Jimmy Carter. But it's just not the case that America woke up in 1980 and said, suddenly we're all Milton Friedmanites. They weren't all Reaganites. They, they didn't well, regret not voting for Goldwater. And neither, neither was Reagan, for that matter. No. You know, uh, it, it, it's, I think it's always good to keep in mind that you know, Reagan, throughout his life, described himself as being essentially a New Deal Democrat. Well, that's true as well. That's true as well. Who, um, you know, did not want to see the New Deal repealed, who just thought the Democratic Party had become uh, radicalized in the 60s and 70s, and he wasn't wrong about that. But, you know, that's an interesting thing because, you know, the sort of National Review model of conservatism was – really rooted in anti-New Dealism. Uh, so, you know, we are not willing to make our peace with this. And uh, I mean, that was the whole beef with Eisenhower. Yeah, it was that, like you know, Eisenhower. He's, he's made his beef with this stuff. And he's made his peace with this stuff. And, and we can't do that. And then, of course, the great champion of uh, National Review conservatism is a guy who explicitly describes himself as a New Deal Democrat who says, you know, I didn't leave my party. My party left me. And um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of, or there was, I think, a sort of, naturally uh, moderating mechanism uh, in our politics in some ways. And I suspect... I think that's been reversed. It's been turned on its head. Go ahead, please. You said Yeah, I suspect that the idea of parties leaving people uh, is about to become interesting once again, because I have a feeling, I could be wrong, and of course events will intervene, but I have a feeling that the Republican Party is about to do very well for the next 10 years. And this is driving people on the left who suspect the same thing crazy because they're saying not without merit they're saying why it doesn't have a platform it doesn't want to do anything yeah it doesn't <laughs> that's right but uh it's also just not the democratic party and i i just can't tell you maybe florida is slightly overrepresented in this way but i can't tell you how many people here say well i usually vote democrat but but not now especially hispanics um yeah. And and you know, that can be a very, very powerful thing, but it's also not remotely the same thing uh, as winning the argument. Um, and, and also, when often when you win the argument, you're not in power when it happens. This is another strange part of politics, is during the 1990s, conservatives actually had won an awful lot of arguments, but they didn't get <laughs> to be president while that happened. And so they didn't get probably as much done as they wanted they were also very frustrated. I think President Gingrich accomplished a lot. <laughs> no, but that's the point, isn't it? That that yeah. you know, if you if you sort of look from 1955, when National Review is founded, to now, and you and you try and place on that timeline the point at which the sort of ideas that had been championed by National Review were most common within the political bloodstream. I would say it was about 1990 to about 2000. And funnily enough, that was the one time between FDR and Obama that we had a two-term Democratic president. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good example of something that I've, I've talked about a lot, which is that presidents basically get to do one thing when they're in office. You get one big thing you get to do. If you're a really successful president, maybe you get two. Um, if you're not very successful president, you don't really get any. But if you control Congress for 30 or 40 years, you can really change the country. And um, even if you control Congress really strongly for a shorter period of time, you know, Gingrich really accomplished some important things on the fiscal front. 
um, that he would not have accomplished if he'd been president of the United States with a Democratic Congress uh, rather than being a Republican Speaker of the House with a Democratic president. And you see the same um, thing in reverse in the Reagan administration, where Reagan accomplished a couple of things he really cared about, tax reform and winning the Cold War. Um, but he did not you know, reverse the growth of government. He didn't lower spending. He didn't lower the debt. And um, this largely has to do with the fact that he had, um, for most of the time of his presidency, Democratic control of Congress, and particularly the control of Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House during those years. He was a really very able and um, formidable politician and uh, who kept Reagan from doing uh, almost any of the things that he really wanted to do on the domestic front, except for the very popular things, so those being tax cuts. Um, you know, Reagan, if you look at his... Um, Budget documents, the uh, uh, things his his White House was talking about, really would have would have liked to have seen a much more you know, kind of radical libertarian uh, transformation of the federal government, but that wasn't ever going to happen with um, situation in Congress being what it was. And the story of the Clinton presidency is you know is really that in reverse, where Bill Clinton, um, you know, was a child of the '60s and wanted to do some pretty radical things, and pretty quickly figured out he wasn't going to be able to, partly because he had to deal with you know, Republicans in, in Congress after 94, uh, but also because the country had really been uh, culturally transformed in, in some ways that made it very, very difficult for this old fashioned, you know, uh, 60s and 70s style uh, Democratic politics to uh, to work. And of course, Clinton knew that, which is why he had, you know, done the whole thing with the um, you know, kind of moderate new Democrats and uh, Democratic leadership conference and all that stuff that, um sort of formalized some of that thinking among Democrats. But I think, well, I know that he was still frustrated by how much he was constrained, not only by uh, Republicans in Washington, but also just by the culture and by the state of the economy and some other things. You know, he complained about being the third term of the Eisenhower administration and saying that when he came back, you know, from if he was ever reincarnated, he wanted to come back as the bond market because that's who was really in charge <laughs> and uh, those sorts of things. Clinton actually had some words of wisdom when he was, um, you know, kind of speaking privately and off the record. But um, yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things I used to like about Gingrich before he became an absolute raving lunatic um, was that he really understood that, that, you know, if you can control uh, Congress and actually pass laws and maintain a kind of stable, policy environment and a kind of stable vector of reform for, for years and years, that's how you really change the direction of the country. Whereas the presidency is this shiny object we like to fight over. And of course, I mean, it matters. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't. It particularly matters with things like uh, court appointments and those sorts of things, um, which matter more than they should, but they they matter. That's, that's the situation we're actually in. Um, but if you really, really want to change uh, the fundamentals of how big the government is, what its relationship to the economy is, what the relationship of the federal government to the states is. Um, that's how that's how you do it. The Congress is complicated and it's not a very fun story, whereas the presidency is this great soap opera that everyone can follow. And so we end up really focused on that rather than on where the business gets done or should be getting done. Yeah, this reminds me of something that Jonah Goldberg always points out, which is that while fighting may feel good what you really want is to provoke your opponents into agreeing with you mm. and 
for much of the 1990s, Republicans had achieved that. Whether Democrats wanted to or not wasn't the point. The Republican ideas about a whole host of policy uh, questions were regnant. And I'm seeing this a little bit at the moment with, with coronavirus, that mm. you know, I've been saying for a year some of the things that Democratic officials and members of the press are now starting to say. And I'm noticing some conservatives are irritated by this. I understand why, but that's what we want, isn't it? You want yes. to win the argument. Now, I'm separating this from some of the behavior of the press, which I think ha- has not been slowness to recognize where we are or any of that, <laughs> but has just Crenness. been... Well, and, and also partisanship. I, I think a lot of the yes. attacks on Florida or Governor DeSantis or what you will have just been cynical and really they should apologize but um, most people and most journalists have taken a while to come around on a number of questions and you know when they have you really have a choice you either say uh great welcome or you say no no no, i don't want to hang out with you because you were wrong before and that politically is a huge mistake i don't think it will matter that much with coronavirus but you know, when Norman Podhoretz said, ah, I think you might be right. <laughs> William F. Buckley didn't say, go away. <laughs> he said, right. can I take you out for dinner? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we see some of this, too, with, um, you know, certain figures on the left who've come around to um, take seriously, you know, conservative complaints about things like what we call cancel culture and, you know, sort of campus hysteria, um, this you know, vindictive small-mindedness we see in, in some aspects of the culture. And we really should, you know, welcome them to the party and uh, work with them instead of, you know, saying, well, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you were really on the wrong side of this. And not only you're on the wrong side, but you were kind of an ass about it. Uh, I'm not going to name any names here, but there are a few I can think of. And uh, we should, um, I guess we should be uh, larger sold about that. And uh, if only out of self-interest. Anything else you want to talk about? You said you were listening to Clarence Thomas's, uh, was it biography or his memoir? His memoir, which he reads and is available on Audible, mm, I normally. I bet that's great. I've been listening to it. Yeah, I normally prefer reading books. I absorb information better that way. But I love Clarence Thomas's voice so much that I wanted to hear yeah. him read it. It's a magnificent book. It's fascinating. I, I learned a great deal about him that I didn't know, and I suspect I felt much as anyone else who's listened to it ends up feeling, which is, wow, my life was easy. <laughs> yeah. And there was uh, a piece I noticed, I noted this on the corner, there was a piece at CNN yesterday about one of the potential Supreme oh, Court oops. nominees <laughs> from, um, yeah, from, uh, she's from South Carolina. And it was She went to a she, state school. Yeah. yeah, she went to a state school. And, and so... That the point of this piece was, look, she's different than all of the others, eight of whom went to Ivy League schools. And look, this is in no way to, to disparage this candidate. As you know, I'm, I'm not remotely a snob when it comes to schooling. And in fact, I think fewer people should go to university and we should be far less uh, obsessed with credentials than we are. It, but it, it's just irritating to see such a flat description as Ivy Leaguer 
used and applied to both, say, Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas. I mean, yes, both of them ended up at Yale Law School. That is true. Both of them have degrees from Yale Law School. That is true. But Brett Kavanaugh, no fault of his own. This is not a criticism. But he went to Georgetown Prep in Bethesda. Then he went to Yale. Then he went to Yale Law School. Uh, He grew up in a a well-off family. Um, Clarence Thomas grew up as a black uh, boy in the segregated South in a town, Pinpoint, Georgia, that was remote, so much so that he spoke Gullah uh, rather than standard English growing up. He then moves to Savannah, Georgia, again segregated as a boy, and he is uh, put into you know, the sort of poverty that I have never and hopefully will never know. No running water, outdoor toilet that was rusted and broken, Um, He didn't have anything to eat. Um, He, uh, you know, then finds his way in a meandering sort of um, sense through uh, Catholic school and then a seminary. Then he drops out and then he ends up at Holy Cross as a a black nationalist. (laughs) And um, (laughs) and he, you know, does well at Holy Cross and he sort of decides he'll go to Yale Law School. He turns down Harvard Law School. He hates Yale Law School, but he finishes it. You know, they're just not the same person. And it's just it's just so odd to me that you would say, well, all of the nine people on the Supreme Court currently, they've had the same route. They've had the same road. But because this other person didn't go to one of those schools, then then she's different. And I guess she is a bit different if you read it. And good for her. But good Lord, what a weird way of describing human beings. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed your emphasis on the word roots in that, uh, in that post. That's why I was um, yeah. mentioning that. Yeah, yeah Clarence Thomas is, um, I think, an underappreciated figure. He'll be remembered as one of the most important men of his time, but it'll take a hundred years for people to get far enough away from the politics to really uh, appreciate what a figure he is. Yeah. And also, I mean, I knew on paper that, that Clarence Thomas had grown up in segregated Georgia. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd processed that. You really knew what it meant. Well, I, I suppose I knew what it meant, although it's always important for people to explain that because otherwise you just have a cartoon view, but I more yeah. mean we're a long way away from segregation now. Um, I was born 20 years after the Civil Rights Act was passed. He is an active Supreme Court justice who remembers it and suffered under it. Yeah. That's that's remarkable. And that is... Because no one else in public life in any major position can say that. The first black president... He had no connection to it whatsoever. I'm not saying nothing bad ever happened to him, but I mean, he, he he was black in the sense his dad was from Africa. You know, he was born in Hawaii. Um, Are you he sure? Had a white that? mother. <laughs> yeah, he had a white mother. Um, you know, he he, he is a, a black man, and I'm sure he suffered some some intolerance and discrimination. But you know, Clarence Thomas. I mean, wow, he, he actually yeah. lived through Jim Crow. Yeah. Yeah, different thing. All right. Uh, good discussion. I do recommend that book to everyone. I haven't listened to it, but I have read it. And um, talk to you next week.